The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plain Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at plainecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC-3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC-3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC-3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Hi, I'm Dave Homewood. In this episode of the Wings Over New Zealand show, the Wings Over Australia tour continues. And James Kitely and I visit the Trelaw Technology Centre, which is the Australian War Memorial's Reserve Collection and Restoration Centre. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. And I'm your host for the Wings Over Australia segment, James Kitely. And we're standing here in a Lockheed Hudson at the Trelaw Centre in Canberra with Jamie Croker. Hi, Jamie. Hey, how you going? Great, great. Can you tell us a little bit about this place where we're in, the facility? Uh, so this is the Trelaw uh, Conservation Facility at Mitchell in Canberra. Um, and where we are now is actually the uh, large technology workshop. So this is where everything pretty much that's big, that has wings, wheels uh, or floats, is uh, conserved or restored um, for, for the uh, future generations to take a look at. Great, excellent. Um, we had a look around the facility. You've got an amazing collection here. But the, uh, the focus on this uh, podcast is really this aircraft we're standing in, the, the Hudson. Um, tell us a little bit, bit about this Lockheed Hudson. Um, well, this aircraft was flown by the RAAF, obviously, um, and it um, flew a short amount of time in New Guinea. Um, post-war, it was um, basically converted to an airliner and uh, then converted again for geo-survey and flown by Dastra. Um, then it was... Um, obtained by Malcolm Long, I think, who um, did some external work to return it back to a, a military appearance, replace the nose that had been removed post-war yep. with a military nose. Um, done a little bit of fit-out, but uh, very little. So when we got the aircraft externally, it was uh, painted in the, in the camouflage scheme um, and looked military, but it had no turrets and um, virtually the interior was as it had been um, panelled by the airline okay. industry. Yep. That's, a, that's a fascinating area because a couple of things I really like about this aircraft is that you've um, 
looked at the panelling in the interior and that's been a fascinating process which we'll come back to but those of us that started off as kids playing with airfix models it was how many guns you can hang on your aeroplane or how many bombs you could put on and one of the the kind of things that you guys are doing is you've put in the structure to put, take the um, uh, the bottom pool turret and um, also the fascinating often under underappreciated um, sort of belly position which isn't really a turret so tell us a bit about those two. Um, well virtually Kim Wood and myself when we um, started looking at fitting those items into the airframe we pulled up the floor and uh, realised the amount of structure that had actually been cut out of the airframe um, was was huge and we got a, a, a whole half rear half of an aircraft that would, had crashed from uh, Tokenwall and okay, that had provided... That, had that been fire damage? Am yeah, I it had right? been through a lot of bushfires as right, well and, and um, it provided a lot of templates for us in conjunction with the blueprints that we had got from National Air and Space Museum to reconstruct um, pretty much all the components that we needed. Um, so the, it was a big job. We redid all the cable runs as well to run uh, up the side of the, the fuselage as well. Um, Post-war, they'd, they'd been um, the cable routing to the to the rear flight controls had been run back down the centre line of the aircraft as it would have been um, in the basic Electra design originally. Okay. Um, and the the um, there was a lot of work in the cable runs and the in the pulley blocks and everything for that as well. That's a, I mean that's a really key point that will will get overlooked in future is because most of that work sadly going to be hidden. But um, you're not just making it look right and and going for the external, but you're actually making re, as you just said re rerouting the cable runs and um, the original uh, Hudson type had a belly. Uh, camera position but this had all sorts of other things going. The original Hudson had the bomb bay of course and that was taken out of service. So there's a lot of internal works um, as you're saying about missing metal work and, and um, you're, I'm sure you'll come to the back end but yeah so there's a lot of hidden work. Yeah that's right and um, I mean that's what we try to achieve too. We're, we're hoping that um, anyone that knows what a Hudson looks like inside when they when they step inside this they, they hopefully won't see what we've actually put into it because right. it'll look right, it'll right. look how it should be. Yeah, and that's more challenging than you might, or I first realised when I start, first started talking to you, because while the Hudson's a relatively well documented type and used across the, the British Commonwealth and the US had them in their Navy and Army Air Forces, um, they vary a lot in little details and what you guys are trying to get right is the little details and there's little bracketry that you know it's a Hudson bracket but actually you can't figure out where it, in fact you told me a great story about that I think didn't you? Yeah so this this um, this switching unit right here um, we had an original one and we could not find where it went and it took I think three years before I finally found a, the corner of it in a photograph that I took of an aircraft in New wow. Zealand I think it was actually Bill Reed's oh, yeah, Hudson yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I just saw the corner of it and I said to Woody I think we finally found this and <laughs> it's amazing, we went for a beer after that <laughs> so well, that's the challenge is that people might think uh, who don't know about restoration that oh you just go to the archive and you draw all the drawings out and they'll give you all of the facts you need to know and, and then you go down to the aeronautical Hudson equivalent of Bunnings or, or you know B&Q or whatever it is and pick the bits that you need and you, know, you just sort of um, uh, Clico it together and then rivet it up but it's not like that at all is it really? No, not at all. I mean we spent quite a bit of time in New Zealand before we actually brought the aircraft into the into the workshops here um, myself and um, one of the curators that used to be here is now retired John White. Uh, we spent three weeks I think it was in New Zealand and um, we looked at all the all the New Zealand Hudsons that we could get access to, and um, took a lot of photographs of particularly the interior fit out of the aircraft. Right. So, yeah, it's it's interesting to see the uh, different restorations that have been going on, and a couple of them in New Zealand to finish now with the one at Wigram and one at Motat, uh, and then there's um, the one at Ferrymead. Did you get to have a look through that one? Yep, we had a look at theirs as well, and that's great what those guys are doing down there with yeah. with what little. Um, resources they do have. Absolutely, yeah, that's a credit to them really. Yeah. And and the rest of the stuff they've got going on there as well, and particularly with the Mosquito Project as well. But uh, yeah, what, what sort of differences have you have you spotted along the way? Are they, have they, has there been much difference? Um, there is a bit. The radio fit out, we ran a different radio sets um, to the New Zealanders. Um, different things with the side gun mounts. New Zealanders ran a big strengthening plate down each side, whereas we just bolted them straight to the to the oh, formers. Right, right. Um, trailing aerial setups. There's two or three different variations and, and swings on that. Okay. Um, a lot of the stuff, though, with our Australian modifications, we were lucky. We had the RAF mod status, 
Um, we don't have any pictures or diagrams with it, we've just got the steps. So when uh, Woody did the radio rack um, in the radio operator's room, we actually built the rack that was in the blueprints that Lockheed would have provided. Right. And then Woody went through and then de-riveted it and did the mods as per the RAF mod order. So we've got a rack that in all essence is, is an original one because it's got all the holes punched in it that would have been there from the original Lockheed assembly. So you, you're actually um, going back through the process as it was have done you know, previously. I mean, it's one of the things I love about doing talking to you guys and, and doing this uh, kind of thing is that those stories quite easily get lost. You know, um, you move on to the next project; it's not not reported on specifically or whatever, um, and uh, people just go, "Oh, that's a nice rack," you know, and there's some funny holes. <laughs> um, so it's great to be able to record these things and you know get them documented, so that that, that level of work and dedication is, is appreciated. Um, I, I think, don't you, Dave? I do. I do. I, I should have asked at the beginning what mark of aircraft is this? What mark has it? So we're actually standing in um, uh, A16105, which is a Mark IV Hudson. Um, so yes, it's, it, but it's also, the, the, perhaps the point here is it's, uh, we've spent a lot of time seeing Hudsons and, and Dave and I have been talking a lot of Hudsons and we've got quite a bit of Hudson in this uh, series of podcasts, which is great, but Hudsons are actually rare. Um, there's less than a dozen identities and some of those are just chunks. Um, there's a few bits and pieces flying or floating around. What's great is that there's several projects on the go at the moment. One we're standing in, which is a great privilege, and we really appreciate you guys arranging that we can come and talk to you Absolutely. inside the aircraft. Um, Bill Reeds, of course, in, in um, New Zealand, which is sort of a, a, a developing project with some background work going on, I understand, and hopefully one day it'll be um, flying across the Tasman to join us here as, a, as an air show special for two Hudsons fly. Maybe, and um, of course... Maybe if you're a reciprocate. <laughs> that's right. Well, it seems a very reasonable request. And um, of course, in Canada, there's one being um, worked on at the um, National Air Force Museum of Canada, which is actually a Atlantic Canada Air Museum's example, and that's a Mark VI. Um, well, I know all the ones that are remaining in New Zealand are Mark III's or three A's there, I think. Yeah. Part of the thing with this is it's it's, um, it's got the, the double row radials rather than the, um, the more typical early radials. So, oh, okay. Because the Australians chose a different engine setup. Ah. And that actually, is, in a nutshell, is one of the challenges. I mean, a Hudson airframe didn't change much at all. The actual, I mean, I'm looking at you guys here, the actual structure and the frame, the airframe, the wings, didn't really get modified much. They added some sla slots in the wingtips, didn't they? Um, different turrets, but that's usually through the same hole. But as we are just touching, all the widgets are a challenge because they, they varied from RNZAF, RAAF, um, uh, American impressed ones got bits added and taken off, and yeah, um, very, com very confusing. Well, that's my excuse, anyway. <laughs> Speaking of bits that have been taken off, you mentioned that it had been uh, an airliner when you guys got it and you took out the panelling that was inside. Yep. As conservationists, did you keep that as well, as, uh, just just to keep that piece of history of the We aircraft? keep tiny little things, like we kept the, the Australian VH registration plate that yep. was inside the door, and we've actually left it inside the door, we've just painted over it, so oh, it's right, still yeah. actually riveted inside the doorway. Right, right. Um, we photograph everything. We, we do before treatment photos, during treatment, and after treatment photos, and all those go onto our um, museum system, yep. um, which can be accessed um, by anyone pretty much um, by making contact with the museum. Um, so we do keep a lot of things, yep. um, but we don't keep everything. Well, we mean, just don't have the space exactly. or the, the need, really. I mean, our, our goal is to take it back to its military, that the reason why we have this aircraft. Yeah. Um, and, and you are a, a war memorial or right. a military memorial rather than an aviation yeah. museum. If we were more a technology-based museum as such, like MOTAT perhaps, um, then the, uh, the whole argument would be then, well, do we bring the aircraft back to its military spec at all? Right. Do we restore right. it as its geo-survey with you know everything that involved? Because, yeah. I mean, that would have played a big part even... In Australia, that, that would have played a big part of its history as well. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, yeah and I guess um, it's really good that you do document it like that because someone may come along and say, hey, I'm doing a book on that particular airline and, and you right. know, if all the all the Hudsons that were in it have been already converted back to military spec, then mm. you know, it's good that you've actually documented yeah. it. So. It's, it's, in that a good example there is we are getting people restoring aircraft to different periods of their service and things like um, target tug, um, uh, military aircraft and target tug schemes and configuration are actually almost 
regular now, whereas 20 years ago you didn't see any because all those target tugs were taken back to the exciting combat role and the target tug stuff you know, pushed aside. But that's going back to a couple of points, you know, the biggest challenge with museums, I think, apart from lack of money, uh, is, is space and, and people don't realise that museums are continually getting donations and expectation that you know granddad's tunic is vitally important and, in, and often it is um, but it may join you know potentially 500 others of granddad's tunic and where do you where do you just draw the line so it's a it's a very big challenge and so keeping little bits is, is much better than not you know not being able to do it at all and or filling up the museum with stuff that's not relevant. Um, but we skipped away from you know, one of the cool and major bits of this, which is the, um, the bolt and pull turret support structure. Yeah. Tell us about that. Uh, big job, <laughs> <Yeah>. especially <laughs> when there was nothing there. Yeah. <laughs> um, the whole area had been skinned over, um, and every single piece of structure relating to that turret had been removed. Um, so we, we actually, like I said earlier, got, got a, uh, a rear section of an aircraft. Um, de-riveted it completely um, and in conjunction with the, the blueprints that we got from National Air and Space Museum um, Woody has pretty much successfully remanufactured every single part um, for that that turret and we've trial fitted it yep. and everything's spot on so in it, fact, it's, uh, uh, I think a little bit of video and some photographs of you trial fitting it is on the War Memorial website isn't it? I think it is actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When you did the blog, there was yep. a couple of points there, so you can see that on the on the wall. We'll put the the link up in the um, the podcast page, which sure. um, some great stuff. And you, you've documented quite a lot of these bits and pieces for people who are interested, like us, in these kind of Hudson developments. But for those that can't see the picture, we're looking at a couple of massive steps at the back of the air. So think of your small airliner cabin. I mean, it's the same as a modern beach in some ways in that sort of layout. But at the back, you've got a couple of huge steps, and then a whole support structure with a with a circular inspection panel um, so you can see if the um, control cables are still there and uh, if the Japanese have managed to shoot those away um, and then the, the turret actually sits into a, a, a ring inside the fuselage mounted to the stringers um, I'm, I'm looking at Kim here who is actually with us but um, not actually quite, quite close enough to the microphone the sensible chap that he is um, so he can confirm if we're getting that roughly right um, and then there's a whole array of bits and bobs that you've got the floor um, on those steps back in um, so yeah, I can, we can see it's a big job, but again, it's something that's going to be broadly invisible unless you have you know the doors open um, to someone looking at the aircraft from outside. Um, I, I got a bit of um, uh, an idea of the operational side of the turret the other day because uh, I, I flew into Tomorrow and I was with Steve Deeth and he said, do you want to have a look in the Hudson that was parked next to us? And um, so we had to crawl around inside it and he showed me over it. and. Uh, when we arrived, it was 41 degrees Celsius, yep. and it was effing Warm. hot. <laughs> too, much, too much for the average Kiwi. Yeah, yeah, it's too well, much for most that's Aussies, about, that's to be about 20, 20 degrees too much for the average Kiwi. <laughs> and, uh, and inside the actual aircraft, I'm sure it must have been closer to 60 degrees. And he said, oh, climb up in the turret. And of course, everything's black. And it was literally, everything was like a hot plate. I couldn't touch it. And, yep. and even just putting your hand sort of half an inch away from it, you could feel the heat coming off it. Mm. And I thought, this is Australia, imagine up in the Pacific, it's gonna be worse. Those things sitting on the coral strips and uh, some poor young lad has gotta get up into that thing and strap himself in and then go flying. And, and just to it jump- Must have been murder. Uh, really hard, and, and just to jump in there, the turrets are very big, round sort of, it's a very odd very shape. Big. I can tell you now that Well, I was gonna say, well, sorry, from outside, yeah, thank you, gentlemen. Um, <laughs> from outside, it looks very big. It's a really odd sort of shape, but first to get into it, you've gotta go through a really small little kidney-shaped hole, and there's a sort of swing down. There's no way you can not be touching bits of metal with that turret. Yeah, and um, you also have to make your body into a sort of an S-shape. It's not, not easy to just step up into. No, no, very difficult, and, um, so I presume that's one of the reasons you've left the turret out of here at this, uh, this stage of the, uh, the restoration. You know, it fits, you don't need to um, be able to, um, you know, make it, uh, leave it in there while we're working on it. Yeah, lets a lot more light as well into the fuselage. Yeah. Especially in the workshop here with the lighting we've got, so. And you're unlikely to be attacked by the Japanese at this stage, hopefully. Very unlikely, <laughs> we would hope. Well, I don't know, there's an Oscar just through there, it might come through. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> That's seen better days. Um, yeah, so you moved. You really started at the back of the aircraft. Is that right? And working yeah, that's right. So we we sort of set out. First of all, we thought, well, if we can get both the upper and lower turrets in, and make it more military-esque from outside, I think that would, that would be a great start. And um, as time's gone on, um, we've 
we've uh, worked our way forward and um, it's um, looking like now we've got a, a June finish date for right. 2016 um, and we should have the majority of the work. There's, there's always little things that um, in a project like this you'd like to get finished but there's just so much you know of the, of the little things that we could yeah. be here you know for <laughs> forever if we kept going but June 16 um, we're hoping we'll have an aircraft that's you know 90 odd percent back to how it would have been. That's brilliant. So. I mean, and a good example of those little things you talked about that sort of switch bracket which I've just taken a photograph of so we'll make sure it's documented but next to it is a, a set of what basically looked like aeroplane cycle clips. <laughs> uh, ex please explain. <laughs> um, these ones here? Yes. Okay so they're just um, flare clips but again uh, we had three original ones and I think there's a total of two, four, six, eight, ten, twelve, there's like fourteen I think okay. through the whole airframe. There's another setup in the nose. Um, so we've had one of our volunteers actually make all the tooling to to manufacture all the separate pieces that go into, into making those. Um, which would seem like a pretty simple task, but um, due to the size of them, the radius and the bends, the pins, all the little things that go to make one, um, it, it took him quite some time, but, but we've got all the tooling now and, and it's an easy job, but it's just little things like that that, that add to the, the whole look, I guess, of the interior of the aircraft and make it seem or make it make it look like it should be right it's actually an interesting little story um, this is a Royal New Zealand Air Force story I guess the Australians may well have done the same thing but when you mentioned the flares uh, our Air Force cooperated a lot with the um, US Navy uh, up in the Solomons and uh, they, they, the US Navy quickly found that their um, Grumman Avenger uh, TBF TBM yep. squadrons were um, uh, not very good at navigating at night. They were getting lost a lot. So they asked the um, number three squadron, Royal New Zealand Air Force, to provide a Hudson to actually guide them to a target and then guide them back. So they were actually uh, flying ahead of the, the squadron and dropping a flare every now and then um, just to give them a little path. And then they'd stand off and watch them uh, bomb the target. And then they then they would start dropping the lead, flares lead and lead them, them home again. Like a sort of trail of breadcrumbs. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly like that. And each crew. Um, would be rostered on to do that night duty, um, which is really interesting. So uh, usually a crew would only do it once, but the, the, the squadron was actually doing it nightly. That's neat because I mean, there's a lot of flare fittings in a lot of British Commonwealth aircraft, and a lot of the time they never got used. I, mm. mean, I think they often got used on Hudsons, uh, to be fair. But um, yeah, it's neat to have these stories, isn't it? Um, yeah. and, and I guess this is about aircraft and, and about a people, but also the stories. And you know, great talking today because. I'm remembering things that we talked about last time I was lucky enough to come up here and have a, a look over the aircraft and my job is to try and document what you guys are doing so that doesn't get lost um, and it's more widely publicised through the magazines and also to try and get it right too which is uh, which can be a challenge. Um, so I'm just looking there's a lot of brackets and bits and pieces fitted um, uh, but you've moved forward now you're working on the cockpit and the nose. Yep so we're um trying to get as much done in the cockpit as we can. We've, we've had a lot of instrument position changes um, post-war with, with um, the addition and subtraction of a lot of different things. Um, so we're looking at, at uh, trying to get that back to, to how it should be. Um, and Kim's been focusing his attention on the nose with the, uh, the forward firing gun mounts, um, all the structure for the, um, the hinge for the navigation and the bomb aimers bed. Um, all the seat tracks, the nav table, formation lights, so pretty much everything in the nose that had any sort of military attachment is, is long gone and, and um, things like the, the main, main flare chute in the nose, all those sorts of things, so there's, there's still quite a bit of work to, to be done in the nose, and, um, but we've, we've got uh, one, one side of the, the gun mounts pinned in, or riveted in just last week, and um, we hopefully, end of this week, I hope uh, we should have the other side done. So that's that's going to be a big, big um, milestone for us to get those back in. Fantastic. Was this a radar-equipped aircraft? Uh, I don't, don't think, think so. so. No, no, I don't think we operated. And again, please write in if I'm wrong. Um, but I don't think the RAAF operated radar-equipped Hudsons okay. as such. Oh, sorry, when I say that, um, we have the uh, air, air, sea, um, air surface vessel operated um, uh, dipole aerials in the refuselage. Right. So we're talking. 
different kinds of radar in this context. Um, and we're, <coughs> we're also looking at the, um, the trailing aerial uh, fairly, you got that fitted. We've left a couple of bits off at the moment which are very important uh, along with the turret. Um, the uh, camera mount which can be fitted and removed, is that right? Yeah that's right, so we're looking at a lot of stuff here that we've actually completed um, but we've left out just for ease of access. So at the moment we're getting access, the aircraft's jacked and levelled and we're um, getting in and out of the airframe through the, the lower tunnel gun position, so through the hole in the fuselage there. Um, and just so we're not tripping over stuff, we've strategically left out things that we know we're going to either trip on, fall on, or <laughs> split our heads on. That makes sense. Or even damage with the strength of your own body <laughs> yeah, as well, of course. That's so. right. Um, but um, yeah, the camera mount and everything's all done and the, 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 um, the support structure. And, and again, that's something that uh, Bill Reid was, was um, very helpful with. Um, he actually had the camera mount. Uh, with the with the airframe that he's got, so we uh, loaned that and um, we conserved his and painted his while we had it here, and we oh, um, built a replica off his as well. So, yeah. with most projects, there's always something that you're still looking for. And are there any bits missing that you're still looking for? <laughs> um, yes, there is. But um, what do we need? Some Bombay doors that don't have holes cut in them. That'd be brilliant. <laughs> yeah. That'd save us so much time. So you're basically, you're basically having to reconstruct Bombay yeah, doors because so you've got them, but they've got yeah, the holes. Our Bombay doors have had so many holes cut in them. They had holes cut for baggage doors when it was an airliner, and then they cut holes for ground, I don't know, some sort of radar for the uh, ground survey stuff. And um, we've got holes everywhere. So. Bill's uh, Hudson is rare and unusual, and it's one of the few, I think, only airframe that hasn't been messed with in some way. So what what Bill's got is missing a lot of the actual equipment, but most of the mounts are there and not cut off or removed for airlining or whatever mm. else has happened but to this the This is also rare and unusual in that it's had yes. combat uh, and uh, been attacked on two different occasions. I think... Um, um, by, well, actually, probably more than two, two but two, at least two. Two, two in consecutive days with the same crew on board. Uh, by th three zero fighters and survived, which is quite remarkable mm. for, for an old airliner like this. <laughs> yeah. And, and um, I believe it was one of the very first um, Royal New Zealand Air Force aircraft into combat. It was in the first, yep. The first, yep. thank Definitely, you Dave, yep. um, uh, in the Pacific War. Um, and again, what we're standing in had some fascinating history which we'll, we'll have a look at on, on the website. But very briefly, was actually taken out of OTU service and um, taken back into uh, supplying the Bunak Gona uh, campaign where they were flying equipment and men in and out as appropriate. Not an easy job, but a couple of the other aircraft brought from the OTU, um, I think it was Bairnsdale, um, were actually lost and, and shot up. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, the history is, is important, but uh, you know, getting back to the actual structure is important too. And we haven't talked about the other biggie, of, of sort of favourite element of the aircraft for me, which is the space we came through, which is a, a belly hole, but not any old hole in the belly. The, the tunnel gun? Yes. yes. Well, um, what do we want to talk about? <laughs> well, first <laughs> of all... It's a scary uh, thing. I, don't, I have no idea how they... It just sort of... When it's actually lowered, it's, it's swinging on two shafts that are it's cranked up and down by a um, pretty much a, a crank handle and a push-bike cable. And um, it seems very unstable when it's lowered and, uh, um, you know, when it's uh, in the airflow, you'd be getting buffeted around quite a bit, I would expect. Um, there's a, there's a um, is it a 50 calibre or a 30 calibre? I think it's 30. Th 30 or 30. 303 would yeah, be for right. us, wouldn't it? That, you, that sits in the bathtub, as it were, and then once you drop the back end down, for those sort of imagining what we're trying to describe, you then rack that forward on a special mount that you guys recreated, I yep. believe, and um, then lock it in position deployed, and then you can annoy the um, enemy fighters that are following you. But I agree, it's, it's a scary-looking position. And um, it's not on all the Hudson models, it's uh, only on a couple, and I think probably some of that is because they just found it was draggy, nobody wanted to volunteer and probably didn't do a huge amount in, in case, they've, they've probably found it's better to head for the deck and you know try and keep their own they were, clean. They were very seldom used in combat, yeah, yeah, yeah. usually you'd have the, the top gunner fighting off uh, something and you'd have the beam guns, beam guns with the radio and, op. and you'd yeah. have the front guns uh, yeah. with, from, from the pilot of course. And actually the, the Hudson, although as Dave said earlier, converted airliner, it was a very effective aircraft and um, like any, I mean we forget this, but any bomber is going to be vulnerable to fighters, but this was actually remarkably well armed for the period early war service um, and it did have guns pointing in most directions and many of them put up phenomenal fights which we've already talked about in some of the other podcasts in the series. 
Um, so not a bad job. But yeah, the, the ventral position is not a not a great, not a joy. And of course, it's a reconstruction uh, challenge as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, there was a lot of work that went into that. Um, we did find evidence when we started removing the flooring of, of um, structure that was left there. Um, so Kim's patched, patched those areas um, that we, we could. Um, now essentially the main beams that, that give the strength back into the fuselage. Um, but we also had some of that structure on the, on the um, rear fuselage that we got from Tokenwall. So again, we, we used that as templates um, and, and made new structure to, to fill the void. So, and I think it. you had a, um, didn't you have a very badly distorted bathtub that was relatively complete, is that right? Uh, we did, um, but we, we, um, we ended up uh, sourcing a second one that was in really, really good condition. Yep. Um, and we've, um, we've conserved the, the paint inside that, and um, uh, we had the blueprints for the, for the, uh, the gun support, Yep. So um, Martin Tandy, our machinist, um, machined up that whole gun support from scratch, including the chute um, fairings, right. spent chute fairings and yep. everything. Um, and so we've, we've again we've trial fitted that unit, and everything lines up lines up beautifully with the uh, the new skin repairs on the underside of the fuselage. So it's, uh, it's it'll that'll be something that we obviously will put in just before we drop it off jacks, but. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just a, a terrible thing to try and walk around when it's retracted into the aircraft. It takes up a lot of space. That's one of the things about the Hudson. Anyone who's uh, ever been lucky enough to fly in a Hudson, and a lot of older people will have done as airliners or uh, working in them in Canada and Australia and so on. Um, there's a, there's a, we're standing, in fact, um, next to the a big box across the floor, which is that the flat uh, jack unit, is that right? Uh, yep. And then in front of, uh, behind Dave, forward, forward of that is the spar, which is a big, chunky thing. Um, and then once they started putting the military equipment in the floor, it, it's a bit of a, a tap dance minefield. There's holes everywhere, and as we just touched on, all sorts of stuff there. Um, so quite a quite a challenge. Um, but something else we've we've looked at in this conversation so far, but not touched on, which I think is very important, is the paintwork and the, the internal paintwork and the stencils and markings. Yes. Yeah, so when we um, we started to remove the paneling that had been put into the cabin area and we, it was just like a three-ply that had been screwed inside it um, to try and make it more uh, airline-esque, I guess. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and there was a, um, a woolen sound deadener insulation in between that and the uh, fuselage skin. Um, we are pretty happy to find that it still actually retained the original uh, Hudson interior green um, and a majority of the original decals for locations and of specific items such as the camera heater and, and all that sort of thing and the cabin heat um, lever positions and things like that so it was actually a bit of a win for us we've um, there was areas where the, where the insulation had been glued with like a tar based compound Delightful. to the skin um, so we've had to um, we've brush touched or not brush touched airbrush touched up those areas um, but the majority of the interior of the, the rear cabin, anyway, um, is orig the original uh, Lockheed applied Fantastic. interior green. So it's a very distinctive, for those who might not be familiar, it's a very distinctive colour, um, quite a, for a military aircraft, quite a bright green, isn't it? Um, and uh, yeah, fascinating. And those stencils are really neat things because they are a, they're, they're a late 30s kind of thing, I see, whereas you look at the more developed wartime stencils, which are a little less. Um, elaborate and, and nice in, in their, their presentation. And one of the things that I was um, still learning about with Hudson's is there's a hole in the roof and um, I came across a photograph of some Hudson's on the production line um, for the, um, the article I was writing a few months back and it actually showed a little windscreen through that hole which um, we think might have been RNZAF ones because there's a photograph, quite a famous photograph of RNZAF ones with this little windscreen instead of an Astrodyne but um, that's part of a quite a complicated option system isn't it? Can you run us through that? Um, I've actually seen photos of that sort of thing and I think there was like a 303 mount at the top oh, as well. Really? I saw okay. one with a mount yeah. as well. Yeah. So um, you've just got the plane, the, the standard hatch. Yeah. Um, which sort of swings which down out of the hole onto one, way, one side. And yeah. then the Astrodome pivots up the other way. Yeah. We've got a step which comes off the, the box in the centre of the aircraft. Yep. And there was a rather complex tubular 
uh, sliding table, map table setup, um, which she was completely very, surrounded by. Yeah, yeah it's it all was, very elaborate, isn't it? Yeah, I think I've seen one. I'm not too sure. Was it, is it RNZAF that's actually got one? Could be. Yeah, in their aircraft? Yeah. 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 Um, I don't think it would be anyone so, else. Um, yeah, but very complex and fiddly little thing to to make, and it's a wonder it even stood the test of time with like, being like very, used very, regularly. Very important um, position, though. That... I haven't actually told you this, James, but that actual um, fight that they had yeah. against the three zeros, the captain stood in, in the Astrodome yeah. and had the second pilot who was oh, okay. taking the command the, the command from the captain. So uh, he was directing the fight from yeah. this. And that was actually quite common in RAAF Sunderland's, was that uh, uh, the navigator would stand up in the Astrodome and direct the fight. Um, yeah, but this, the na- this there was no navigator, no navigator on the Hudson. No, so much we had, there was, aircraft, there was yeah. two pilots. So, yeah. and. Uh, so the captain jumped up here when they got, got attacked. The gunners, you know, were doing the defence, and and the captain was directing the second he was, pilot. He would be, in fact, calling manoeuvres yeah. to the pilot. So he's actually still in command of the of the aircraft, but really the the pilot, the second pilot, is his proxy, and yeah. and that's that's what actually saved the aircraft. That's why George Gutzel got the immediate USDFC, right. and he wasn't actually flying the plane, which is really interesting. It is, that's, and that's an unusual. In fact, the Japanese, I understand, often had an aircraft commander who wasn't the pilot, and we're, we're sort of indoctrinated into the, the pilot as the guy in charge, which is not always the case, as, as Dave, uh, Dave said there. Yeah. It's How did you get into this? How did you get involved? Um, I'm an aircraft maintenance engineer by trade. Um, I was on contract uh, through Boeing to the Army at the uh, RAF helicopter school yep. at Fairbairn. Um, and it was right on the, at the time when they decided they were going to close the school at Fairbairn and move it to Oakey in Queensland um, to centralise all their helicopter operations. Yep. Uh, I decided I didn't really like the look of Oakey. <laughs> or Toowoomba for that matter. Yeah. So um, I took a redundancy and I got a short-term contract at uh, HMAS Albatross down the coast working on Seahawks. Okay. Um, knowing that the memorial was about to start a lot of major conservation work on its aircraft collection. Okay. Um, what, what, what year was that? What year uh, that that was 2000. Right. Yep. Um, and so 2001 they um, decided, or late 2000, they started the, the Lancaster project and um, they had no aircraft tradespeople on staff at all at that time. Okay. And um, yeah, so that's, that's how I, I got my foot in the door at, at uh, the memorial. Yep. So, and from there we did the Beaufort at the same time actually. Right. Um, and then we moved on to the... the um, Vietnam era, the B model Iroquois, uh, demodded that, took yep. it back to, to uh, its early spec, and um, did the um, First World War biplanes as well. Oh, well that, that's a very interesting area, but just before we go into that, um, so being an aircraft, uh, skilled aircraft tradesman, that's actually a great set of skills, but obviously as a museum conservator, there's a different set of skills that you have to bring to bear. I mean, can you explain that to us a bit? Yeah, so I guess um, the industry where we come from in operational aircraft, um, you know, if you uh, repair something and you go and get the new O-rings out of store or you order a new replacement component or um, um, swap out what's broken with with new items and obviously with with, um, the museum um, industry, we're trying to save what is broken and bring it back to to, um, something how it was. So it was a totally... I guess um, different way of still working on aircraft, but totally, you know, don't throw anything out until you know for sure that, that uh, it's it's not important or it hasn't got history. Yeah, that's that, that's a really good point because there's a classic mistaken question people ask about museum aircraft, which is, is it is it ready to fly? Could you just fly it? And and that's actually a perfectly natural one to ask, but that's not the objective here. Is actually the objective is to have it stabilised and able to survive for a long time. So you don't have stuff that's, uh, you know, you remove a lot of the fluids and um, uh, and fuels and so on, um, so that it will it will sit quietly and, and, and not rust as much as one can achieve that very difficult uh, challenge. And it's yeah, it's a bit of a reverse in expectations, isn't it? You, you're, right. you're not looking to repair something to airworthy. You're looking to keep as much as original as possible, which is often more challenging than people realise because you make you're making individual decisions about each component, aren't you? That's right, and we don't want it to look necessarily like a, a brand new model kit when it's when it's yeah. been done either. You know, we're, we're trying to keep the the original patina, if you like to use that word, 
um, as much as possible and and um, and and put back into the the aircraft. I guess its history. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, having gone through the um, Australian War Memorial this afternoon, I mean, the, for the, the first the, time. For the first time ever. Yeah. I'm really really impressed and the. The displays are a credit to you guys. All of the aircraft and everything else is just an absolute credit to you. It's fantastic. Uh, yeah, I think it's one of the world's. Nobody would argue it's one of the world's great collections, and one of the key elements of that is the aircraft. And you know, you're adding um, to that. And I think learning as you go too. I think you'd probably say to us, each new conservation or restoration, you're finding things that you do differently. And perhaps I'm putting words into your mouth here, but you'd like to go back and redo some things in the light of later knowledge. I know that applies in other museums. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you, you're always learning, and and um, you're always finding out new information too. It, it's happened so many times where we've we've pretty much finished a certain part of an aircraft or an object, and it's gone on display, and, and then the photo that you never knew existed, <laughs> showing exactly what you didn't know, turns up. up. Yeah. So occasionally it, it confirms your your best guess, but tragically so often it, right. uh, it shows that your your guess wasn't quite good enough. Yeah. Um, actually, that leads us very neatly in a way into the World War One uh, aircraft, which is a fascinating area. We won't go into huge detail, although I'm sure we would love to because it's it is some great stories. But uh, you put together one of the very important collections of Great War aircraft in the world. It's not very many airframes, but they're all original, um, and um, they had had conservation and restoration done before. But just as we've said, knowledge has moved on. Um, knowledge of things like lozenge camouflage, a dangerous area I really am brave enough to tread in because there's a lot of opinion there and so on. But um, if I remember correctly, there's the DH-9, which was in civil colours post-war, Paris, uh, uh, one that he flew back to Australia. Uh, the SE-5, um, which, which is a great, it's an Imperial gift aircraft, I think. Um, if, I'm, if I'm correct, I'm looking at Jamie and he's nodding. Thank you, Jamie. And um, then the the, uh, the two German aircraft, the Feltz and the Albatross. And the Avro 504. And the Avro 504, thank you. Yes, which is another Imperial gift, gift aircraft. Quite right, Dave, thank you. I, I counted one shy there. Let's talk a bit about the German aircraft because they're always very popular. Um, they were a big challenge too, weren't they? They were. Um, both of them had been, had undergone, I think they were 60s restorations. Yeah. Um, in which... Um, we thought both had been completely paint stripped. It turned out, um, and one, one thing we've learned is never ever believe 100% what you've been told <laughs> even about what's happened in the past. Yes, um, even if it's by your immediate forebears. <laughs> because it turns out the fowls had not been 100% stripped. Ah, right. And yep. um, there was a lot of original paint samples found on that aircraft, and uh, that allowed, we found samples of, of pretty much every colour um, right. and all the original stencils. Um, that had been sort of sun bleached, I guess you'd call it, into the into the timber work. Wow. So they, um, we could actually locate all the original stencils and um, and writing on the side of the fuselage. So we were able to to take um, copies of all that um, and reapply it in the exact same positions. Um, and we got good colour samples as well, so they were all colour matched. Just to jump in there, I mean, one of the things is that if you'd taken the documentation at face value and gone, well, yeah, we know there's nothing there, we can just strip it off uh, quickly with a uh, relatively straightforward approach, obviously you wouldn't use anything really aggressive, you'd have lost that information, but presumably, you, you, I'm not saying this specific example, but it's a general good museum principle, is to go slowly and carefully and cut back in layers as far as you can to see what's underneath. And flip side of what we're just talking about, you're actually more often positively surprised than you expect to be with finding stuff you didn't expect to find there is that a fair comment yeah that's right and i mean it, it same goes with the albatross i mean there was there was an assumption around that, that there was uh, at some point in time that all the um the metal components had been painted a brown and so that had been taken it was done quite a long time ago and that had been taken as the the standard color that the the metal struts and wing struts on the albatross had been painted right. um, but again we went back down through the paint layers and we found that the the uh the first coat of paint applied over the primer was actually a really pale, pale green, oh. um, and and that that and then directly over that we did find the stenciling on the struts, so that then you know clarifies that that actually was the first colour. Right. Um, so uh, we also found that um, we found some of the original fabric off the albatross um, in the store of the uh, company that did. The 1960s restoration on it, they'd held on to the original fabric all this time. So we're also able to work out that it had uh, lozenge fabric laid in different directions. It was also a mixture of plain 
fabric without lozenge that had been painted over. Some oh. lozenge fabric yeah. had been camouflaged over and wasn't just doped. And so wow. there was all sorts of different things with that aircraft that um, defied yeah. the, the normal, I guess, or the, the standard understanding of what, what they, they should be like. So, and that's a, in a way when you're when you're conserving or restoring a specific aircraft with a specific history, you you try and and do follow that evidence for that aircraft. And so often it's unique. It's that aircraft is unusual, and of, many of them are unusual. Um, and when you're doing a sort of a standard build, say of a replica, you're trying to figure out what the normal is. And actually, the, the book learning says it's this, and you go with that. And then of course, there's, as we were just saying earlier, other information comes to light. Um, but the fabric, obviously you weren't able to reuse the original fabric, how did you go down that route? No, so um, there was a production of the original lozenge fabric off the apparently original rollers um, out of Belgium, I think it was. Right. Um, and that was, I think that was done in the, in the early 80s um, and our curator at the time purchased um, enough uh, rolls of this lozenge right. print fabric to do, knowing that in time yeah. our aircraft would need to be redone um, and so uh, that was done and when and when we found the original fabric for the albatross we overlaid the new print fabric um, and because at some point it had been painted as well the original fabric the color had not faded right um, in certain areas so we, we overlaid that and the color match and the lozenge print match was was identical you couldn't pick the two and we've got photographs of that of the new fabric laid over the original and the matches nigh on perfect. That's terrific. And one last th thought I, I have on, well two things in the, in the fuselage of the albatross actually is one there was a fair amount of um, fuel and oil soaking in the, in the, uh, the albatross is a uh, wooden monocoque uh, fuselage structure with ply um, on the outside and you had obviously a fair amount of oil and fuel in the, in the lower belly and also um, it doesn't but it does have crosses on the fuselage. Can you tell us about those two items? Yeah so we've actually got it would appear um, original production photographs of an albatross coming out of the out of the factory, um, and it is our aircraft, um, oh, wow. and it's it shows the aircraft with a bare timber fuselage with the um, the iron crosses on the fuselage, um, and then the photos of our aircraft at capture, um, the side of the, the fuselage has been painted green and the cross on the side of the fuselage has been completely overpainted yeah. um, and the, the cross then has been moved up to the, to the uh, tail fin. So when we did the aircraft we stripped the fuselage back to the, timber, the original timber and painted the cross and the serial number and then we overpainted the fuselage green and moved the, <laughs> moved the cross up to the tail. So in the right light in the gallery you can actually see the cross underlaid under the under the new paint. Well, that's fantastic. That's it's really interesting. It is. I think, if I remember rightly, and correct me again, Jamie, that there's a little tick of the bottom edge of the cross and where the green paint stops. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So, so there's, there is a touch of original paint there where the where um, where you can just see the cross, but, but that's it. And that that oil soaking, because that's a, that just kind of boggles my mind. You've got a piece of wood with oil in it. What do you do um, to deal with that? Um, we pretty much just. Um, mopped up as much as we could and, and yeah. we've left it there's not a lot we can do with it you you know we there's um it's not hurting it yeah um stabilization it's, it's is what fine you're for, there's it? there's uh there is nappies in the in the bottom of the fuselage now as such or we call them nappies but they're just an oil oil soaking material i guess you'd call it yeah. um because it still has the engine in it and um they just continually you know we're not flushing the engines dry and that sort of thing we need to keep some moisture in them so they still do leak like yep. all engines leak yes. yep. and um we just change that on an as needs basis so yeah, that's terrific uh, another great thing about the, that particular aircraft is that it helped to bring back the um albatross as a flying aircraft as well didn't it that was involved with the uh, process of the restorations or reproductions. Yeah, that's right. When we were doing the uh, conservation on that aircraft, Peter Jackson came out with his team of guys from, um, was it Weta? Uh, uh, yes, well, I'll yep. hand to Dave because he's our Kiwi expert here. Well, Weta or the Vintage Aviator, yeah, one, um, one of the two. Yeah, and they brought out their laser scanning equipment and I think they spent, uh, it was probably a month here, right. might have been a month, um, and we had the fuselage on a rotisserie, so they pretty much laser scanned the whole aircraft. We had the fabric off the wings, everything, and um, it was it was it was really interesting to watch actually because they could uh, they scanned a piece of cardboard for us. I was curious about the laser, and they scanned a piece of cardboard, and it actually 
picked up the height difference between the ink like there was a, something written on the piece of cardboard so when they rotated the image on the computer you could see the height difference between the ink on the cardboard and the actual oh, face of the cardboard so that's remarkable i guess uh, every every um, albatross that's flying i guess you, is a clone of, of our aircraft <laughs> yeah. i guess it is so. that's well that's brilliant. brilliant yeah it is and, and i think again we're talking one of the things we've had in this podcast series is being i personally amazed by some of the technological advances being brought to bear um, which is which is great and great to hear these kind of uh, stories about how it's happening um, just to go off on another tangent, you may be able to hear in the background uh, of this uh, this recording a rather sort of loud roaring noise, which is the um, uh, the climate control system that you guys have here. It's this is not just an ordinary building. Maybe you could say a little bit about that, Jamie. Um, yeah, I'm not 100% on it all, but um, it keeps it keeps our whole store and workshops at a constant temperature and humidity, um, and we've got a constant airflow from one end to the other to um, help the um, dust not to settle on the objects in the store um, so it's we're lucky we've got a, a great facility like this it's the best hangar I've ever worked in in my career <laughs> <laughs> sure Kim would well, agree yeah <laughs> so. I, I think it's one of the best museum um, facilities I've seen traveling around the world it's definitely a gold standard for the for the job and again put that into context um, we've talked about the aircraft but in here you've got uh, a stuffed horse you've got tables uh, bits of ship stuff with um, salt water soaking uh, tanks which are pretty robust but some of them aren't um, all sorts of weapons it's a huge um, well it's a bit of a boys toys treasure zone as well isn't it for a lot of people yeah that's right we're pretty much uh, anything that's that's big um, is stored in this building so um, yeah tanks planes boats you name it doesn't that sound great <laughs> in terms of the climate control this is much much more comfortable than the Hudson I was in the other day there was about 60 degrees inside yeah, yeah absolutely and that's the thing is you know do you guys find yourself working on the aircraft and you you know you're just working it's a job and then suddenly you go well someone was swinging a gun out of this waste you know and there were guys coming trying to kill them on the other side do you find yourself thinking those kind of thoughts yeah I, I mean yeah it's um it's one of those things we we sort of come here day after day week after week it's it's a job and then we we um every so often you have to go into the main museum to to do something and and you see that striking by night show or yeah you know something like that the, the iroquois um sound and light show behind the iroquois and, and things like that and that really brings it back to to yeah. you know what it is we're doing here and and um and um what actually these things were used for Absolutely, and a good point there is that uh, Andy Bishop, the chief engineer at the, to the um, Tamora um, Aviation Museum, we were just talking to him in another podcast episode, don't miss it, um, and uh, he was being very complimentary about the work you guys were doing, and, and we've chatted a bit before this. we started recording about you guys sharing information about the one other thing we haven't talked about with this Hudson, I think, we'll come to that, but um, so sharing the information, but it's complimentary, I mean Andy was saying you've done things to this aircraft he'd like to do to theirs but they can't because they have to operate it and they need to use it as an aircraft to carry stuff around he said trash haul I, I, I wouldn't say that that's that's unfair on the Hudson but fair comment um, and equally you know you're preserving it in um, a static beautiful static conserved condition hopefully for a very 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 long time um, they're flying it for and trying to conserve it for a very very long time as far as they can but it's very different demands and it's great to have it's great to have both um, and that's just, as I said, I just reminded myself, we haven't talked about the bomb base. Uh, tell us a bit no. about the bomb base, Jamie. Um, well, bomb bays, ours has been, like most of this aircraft was, totally pilfered of all its fittings. Um, and in particular, the bomb bay doors, the, the bell cranks that um, enable the cable system to open and close them, um, had pretty much been hacksawed off. We're not sure why, because they don't really get in the way of anything else that the bomb bay was used for post, post-war. But nonetheless, they'd been hacksawed off. So um, in one of our trips out to Tamora to visit Andy, we noticed that his bomb base had a beautiful set of the bell cranks right. um, on, on there. So, Did he notice you um, getting excited? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so um, Kim and I asked rather nicely if next time the aircraft was in for a bit of a major, if there was any chance we'd be able to do something. So um, Andy and the, the guys out there were very gracious and... Um, we totally removed their Bombay doors out of their airframe, um, took the bell cranks off the main shafts, and we shipped them down to, um, where did they go to? Glen Rowan, um, and the, um, the rough, they were pretty much, roughs were cast off Andy's yep. original bell cranks. Um, 
and was when we removed them we actually noticed that one of Tamora's bell cranks were actually cracked so right. we actually got um, an extra one cast up for them as well brought them back to our uh, machine shop here um, along with the blueprints which we we had um, Marty our machinist um, drew that up in CAD for the CNC machine we then put the bell cranks into the CNC yep. and did all the final machine work on them um, and took the took the original ones back to tomorrow and uh, they were fitted back onto the airframe so and yesterday I'm oh, sorry um, day before yesterday was the first time they were shown off in public uh, to an, an adoring crowd so there you go yeah, yeah. Um, terrific achievement and great sharing of sharing of knowledge in that way um, just to go, just picking up a bit about the uh, navigator's position, we talked about a very complicated, talking about a very complicated system of a, a table that sits, you were saying, Jamie, sits around the, the nav looking through the Astrodome. And I think that indicates that when the Hudson was put together, the concept of a World War, what was to become a World War II aircraft was still settling down. They didn't really know how some of this was going to play out. And they were thinking 1930s astro-navigation type approaches, and so they gave them a very complicated system, which I'm personally sure, I've got no evidence, was quickly discarded by most of the air forces, and they quite quickly found they were able to use on, rely on radar and other um, uh, you know, DF direction-finding beams to get their way around, and navigation was a completely different game to the way this aircraft was originally built. So it may be that's a legacy of a kind of a different, uh, different approach. Again, it's my guess, so I could be completely wrong, but there's an elev evolution element to the Hudson, isn't there? Oh, definitely. I mean, um, we're looking at things which we probably won't get to fit, unfortunately, but, um, I mean, there's curtains uh, across all the windows in the cabin. Um, you know, there's timber work in the cockpit, um, things that really seem out of place in a, in a military spec yeah. aircraft. Yes. And, of course, every, every lesson that they learned from the Hudson went into the next design, which was the Ventura, yes. which was a lot more military-minded, so yes. yeah, that, that's, um, that is part of the evolution, I guess. But I'd like to pick that up, Dave, and I think we're coming to the end here, but the, the Hudson was the aeroplane that we, the Canadians, the New Zealanders, the Americans even, the British, was there when we needed it, South 1940 Africa. right up until um, 1941 when the, the first battles were being fought. The Venturas, like many other aircraft, played a vital role, but um, we started the European war and we started the Pacific war with, with Hudsons as one of our main striking aircraft. And that's the aeroplane, it's the guys who did the really hard work flying them, and I, you know, I think I'd also like to say lovely to talk to you guys about this and it's it's terrific and it's great to see that you also like us appreciate that it's to remember those kind of uh, situations those guys were in with these particular uh, aircraft but that's been terrific have you got any other questions Dave? No I'd, I'd just like to say I, I always appreciate appreciate anybody who restores old aircraft but when something as important as the Hudson and so rare as this it's even more special and I just want to say thank you and congratulations to you guys. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you very much, Jamie. Thank you. Cheers. No problems. And thank, you. Uh, thank you to Kim, who's been monitoring that we've been getting it roughly right throughout. Thank you, Kim. Yeah, thank you, Kim, and well done. <laughs> that was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.